John chapter 5. The last time that we were in John chapter 5, we had looked at the first nine verses. Now, I'm going to come back to that uh, for just a little bit, uh, being that it's been a few weeks now since our last study in John. I thought, I thought it best to do a review of the initial text of this chapter leading up to the section that we need to cover today. So as we begin reading chapter 5, let me just comment on something that we will be seeing more and more as we continue on through this gospel, and that is this. The growing rejection of Jesus Christ. The growing rejection of Jesus Christ, both in Judea, and I'm speaking now biblically, both in Judea and in Galilee, but it is something that was in fact declared in the very prologue of the gospel, the prologue being, of course, the first chapter of John. So in verse 1, I'm sorry, in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, He was in the world, speaking of the Logos, Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. So the world did not know Jesus. But then, verse 11 tells us that He came unto His own, the Jewish people. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. So this is then a a signal, as it were, that when the time would come in which we live today, that there would be a growing rejection of Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll touch upon that as we go on into our text today. But now Jesus was back in Jerusalem, and John gives to us an account of the third sign performed by Jesus, one chosen that people might believe in Jesus as Messiah, and in believing they might have eternal life. Let's first of all talk about the three signs that have, that have taken place so far. The first sign, of course, was in chapter 2, and that is uh, the, uh, the miracle of uh, changing the water into wine at Ga- uh, Cana of Galilee. And then there was, in chapter 4, the, the healing of a nobleman's son from a distance, the nobleman's son being in Capernaum, and the Lord healing him. And now we see here in uh, chapter 5 this healing of a lame man who, who was lame for 38 years. And as I said, these signs, and remember this, and this is again a little bit of review over the whole of, of the gospel, and that is that in the gospel of John, we will see seven I am statements that John focuses upon, that Jesus makes. I am, meaning that he was God in the flesh. The signs are to indicate that he came as Messiah. There are seven signs, specific signs. That doesn't mean that Jesus only healed or, or, or did these signs seven times. There were many more. So let me just say this. The sign that we have, the signs that we've seen so far, and the signs that we will see were chosen that people might believe in Jesus as Messiah and in believing they might have eternal life. Now, that comes from the next to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These, all of what you've seen and will see in the Gospel of John, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So these, this is the purpose of the signs that is to bring you to believe in the, in the work of Jesus Christ as as the Messiah of Israel, and that you would believe and trust in his name, and that, of course, would have everlasting life. So, 
Let's read them through the text and review what we've already read and studied previously in verses 1 through 9. I, I thought I was going to do this kind of quickly last night, and it, it really stretched, but I think it's good because it's always good to review, and we, we don't want to miss out on anything. And maybe if you weren't here when we did the beginning of chapter 5, that you'll pick up where we left off. After this, it says in verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, men were supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year, and the three feasts that they were supposed to visit uh, there in Jerusalem were for the Feast of Passover, which included unleavened bread and first fruits, because they were all in within the, 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 the period of uh, eight days. Now, so there was Passover, which we might, uh, most people believe was, was the feast in which Jesus was there in chapter 5. Pentecost would be the second feast that they were to, to visit uh, Jerusalem uh, for, and then the last being the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, so, uh, again, he went up to Jerusalem for this feast. And now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, or the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And remember that the name Bethesda means the house of mercy, house of mercy and or grace. House of mercy and grace, or house of mercy and, or, or grace, or house of grace and mercy. Okay, so, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful name, isn't it? So the house of mercy. And then uh, in these lay a great multitude. In those five porches around this pool, there lay a great multitude of impotent folk. In other words, very sick feet, uh, uh, people of blind, halt, withered, uh, halt meaning lame, uh, waiting for the moving of the water. And as we described the water last time, the moving of the water, whenever the water moved, they believed it was angels that caused it to move. But it's called troubled, you know, making the, the water troubled. And, and so we talked a little bit about that uh, when, we, when we studied these first nine verses. For an angel went down uh, at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now that's, in other words, that's the, that's the, the lesson or, or the legend, as it were. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what was happening. And we talked a little bit about that back a few weeks ago, but, uh, but nonetheless... It, it, it doesn't seem in, in, in God's character just to move the water to have people try to find their way to this water first and see that they would receive that. It doesn't, doesn't make sense as far as the character of, of God. And we talked a little bit about that as well. And so we pass over that. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. And when Jesus saw him lie, in other words, he's lying on a bed, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case or condition, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Now, we, we focused on that question that Jesus asked this man. Will thou be made whole? Do you want to be well? That's the question. Do you want to be made well? And what, what do we say? Well, let me ask you this. Do you want to be made well? Yes, of course. But what was the man's answer? Look at verse 7. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another step down before me. They're so focused on this, this legend. They're so focused on this moving of the troubled waters, you know. Considering that, you know, you need a, you need a mediator, but they were looking all at the wrong places. What an answer. You want to be made whole? Well, I trust in the water. 
Because you know the old song says, this water loves me, this I know. But it's not the Bible that tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. What an interesting answer. So what does Jesus do? Okay then, goodbye. Is that what he did? No, Jesus said unto him, rise, take up thy bed and walk. I'm your mediator. But we're going to do this different. You rise, you take up your bed, and you walk. And immediately, it says, immediately, the man was made whole, healed, completely, and took up his bed and he walked. And on the same day, oh, here's the dilemma. On the same day was the Sabbath. All right. So now we have a little bit of the picture of where we've been. So now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem for this particular feast, there can be no doubt that he knew what was awaiting him there. He knew what was going to happen. There are certainly no surprises for Jesus since he knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And he knew and he knows men's hearts as already displayed for us in this gospel. You go back to John chapter 2 and look at verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So already we know that Jesus knows the hearts of men. And by the way, that was another Passover. If, if, if in chapter 5 this is the Passover, this would be another Passover, an, an earlier one. But he knows the hearts of men. He knows the thoughts of men. He knows what everybody's made of and knows what everybody's about. What he knew then, and I bring this up for this point, And for this reason, what he knew was the rejection that he would continue to face from this point on. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Where Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen does gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Consider the prophecy that Jesus is giving here. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Not many years after this, in AD 70, this prophecy comes to pass. Every stone that was upon another stone was torn down by the Romans. And the city was destroyed. And the people were scattered. And the city and eventually the land would lay desolate. Just as the Lord said. And it is because of the rejection by his own people. The rejection of Jesus Christ. 
the rejection of Yeshua as the Mashiach, the Messiah of Israel. And he knew it going in. What we saw in Luke chapter 13 was not stated after the, resu- after the crucifixion, it was before. My question to you today is, there, is there a growing rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ today? Is there a growing rejection of the gospel of Christ? Is there a rejection of all things that, that pertain to God and to Christ and, and to the word of God and to the church today? Is there a growing rejection of all of these things? And because of that, isn't that as much a rejection of Jesus himself as well? Now just listen to this. Because the terminologies that I'm going to use here in this statement may, be, may very well be things that you have heard happening this week in our own country. But I want you to listen carefully. Interfaith meetings. Seeking to find common ground with all sorts of false religions. Seeking to embrace political agendas when it seems convenient. Without standing on the truth of God's word. Accepting abominable access, compassionate even knowing the clarity of the law. Is this not a rejection of the very words of Jesus himself? But I think of the statement that Jesus makes, a very clear statement, a very singular statement, but one that must be understood to know what is happening today in rejecting of the whole of the truth of God. And that is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way. I am and I alone am the way. I am and I alone am the truth. I am and I alone am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Did you notice something here? The Bible is not politically correct. No man, speaking of mankind, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. To try to hold hands with the religions of the world is to slap Jesus in the face. And to say whatever he says in his word, well, some is true, some, you know, you just can question if you want. Jesus says this before he goes to the cross. Because there is no other way to the Father except through him and what he does on that cross. And what he does in the shedding of his blood, in the giving of his life, in, the being, uh, uh, in, in being buried, and then rising again from the dead to conquer sin and death for us. No one else. And the very fact of the matter is that here in this day and in this time, <clears throat> we see some other prophecies coming to pass all around us. Take, for example, the book of Romans. I would encourage you to read all of Romans chapter 1 today as your homework. But in Romans chapter 1, and I'm just going to give you a few verses because we could spend the whole hour on, on Romans 1. But here, if you see this, you see what is happening in the world today. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. 
When the attention of the world turns to one man and not to Jesus Christ, there's a problem. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain, worthless, self-centered in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And this covers the gamut of all of life today, from education to religion, to business, to politics. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And because of this, and we skip a few verses, and again, that's why I want you to read the whole of this, but you go down to verse 24, and notice what God does because of man's, the condition of man's heart in the way that they're looking at him today. He says, wherefore God also gave them up. You want to believe this way? You want to live this way? Then he gives them up to what they're wanting to do. He says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Read on in, in verse 25. Then go jump down to verse 26 and see that he gives them up to other things. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And you could read on in verse 27 about what he's uh, focusing upon there. In verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Notice to what? To a reprobate mind, which means to a literally and morally worthless mind. That is what reprobate means. Literally and worthless, I'm sorry, literally and morally worthless mind. To do those things which are not convenient, beneficial, or even good. And then he says in verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. People do it, and he said, well, you know, that's what they've chosen to do, so you know, what can you say? But the Bible says that if something is a sin, then God is going to judge that. Especially those things that are called Abominations. And who can forgive? But Christ himself, when you come to him and say, Father, forgive me. Or you come to the Lord and you say, Father, forgive me. In the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Not a man. A man doesn't forgive us. I mean, we are to forgive one another personally, but when it comes to being absolved of things... Only Christ. And, and you've got to remember that in John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Understand this. That even if I am being persecuted, well, you will be too. If you love me and if you stay with me and you hold on to my, my word. Jesus went on in the same chapter to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So I said all of that to say that what we see here now in the scriptures, and I don't know what happened to the sound, but something kind of clicked there for, kind of, is that okay? It's not too confusing? Okay. See, I, I'm, I'm, I get distracted easily by things that change. So. so I wanted to make it clear. 
that when Jesus is now knowing that persecution is going to come in a greater way, page after page from here on, until the cross, it is to remind us that as we look for the coming of Jesus again, we have to be ready for that too. But our safe place is the cross and the Word of God. That's our safe place. The cross and the Word of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And so, the great shepherd, the great shepherd meets a sheep. Getting back to chapter 5, by the way. The great shepherd meets a sheep, a sheep, by the sheep gate, near the sheep pool. As I was studying this, I, I, it was brought to my attention, just remembering Psalm 23. Psalm 23, David's great psalm of, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it brought to mind this comparison or contrast, as it were, that it is the good shepherd who leads beside still waters, waters of rest, not troubled waters. What were all the people around that pool doing? They were waiting for the waters to be troubled. But the Lord leads us to still waters. He causes us to lie in green pastures, no longer lying on an ugly, stinking brown mat like this poor man. Can you imagine lying on a mat for nearly 38 years? What it looked like, what it smelled like? Maybe a lot of people didn't come around to him too much. There's a Greek word, apestoso, you know, that kind of thing. He doesn't make us lie down on that kind of mat. He makes us to lie down in green, fertile pastures. And what Jesus did to this man could have brought this man to say, The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> but at this point, he doesn't even know Jesus. And there Jesus was at Bethesda, the house of mercy and grace, knowing all about the place, knowing all about the people and the popular legends attached to this pool. He, he knew every person there. He knew all of their hopes, their frustrations, their disappointments, even their anticipation. All of them, by the way, representing mankind, lying, waiting, believing, despairing, left at the gate of a dead religion. Their diseases... Their infirmities represented the difficult, disappointing times in life. A life that truly is not fair, but God is good. God is good. We live in a fallen world, a result of man's sin. Folks, the world is not a fallen world because of anything God ever did. All He ever did was want to give us life. And give us all good. The days he created were all called good. The things he did was to bring life out of nothing. For those that he would create in his own image. So we live in this fallen world and it's not going to get any better. 
In fact, it's only going to get worse, isn't it? But what is happening today, what is, what is happening all around us in this, in this one world uh, government, one world religion mindset of the world today? We just get everybody together and we'll sing Kumbaya and we should all be okay. But man's too far gone. You read Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 and, verse 5 and it talks about the wickedness of man at the time of Noah. The wickedness of man was great. And if we're living in the days of Noah, the wickedness of man is greater still. But aren't you glad, and I, I don't want to dwell upon all of the evil and wickedness, but aren't you glad, aren't you glad that Jesus said that he would never leave us, that he would be with us always, speaking to his church, speaking to his people, I will never leave you. He says to us, as he said uh, through Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Aren't you glad for that? I want you to remember something else that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 18. Where, when, when he was asking his disciples, who do men say the son of, that I, the Son of Man, am? Oh, well, you know, you're, you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets. But then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock the confession that Jesus responds to. That's the confession. Thou art the Christ. You are the Mashiach. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, you're just a little rock, but upon the rock of your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what we need to realize, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the true church of Jesus Christ, the one that stands upon his word, the one that is filled with the spirit of God and the wisdom of God and the word of God, in the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus alone. And I said all of that to say that the Lord is still in control. No matter what we see, the Lord is still in control. Okay, we got to get back to Bethesda here. So, here we are, back in Bethesda. Jesus' focus was now on one man. And I know I mentioned this the last time, but, you know, people always ask, why, why didn't he just heal everybody? And he could have. But we need to remember one thing. He didn't, hear, he didn't come here primarily to heal the sick. Did he heal a lot of sick? He sure did. Because in healing the sick, what he was saying was, you know, you're sick, but there's a greater sickness that we need to deal with. The sickness of sin. And just as he chose one woman in Samaria to speak to, that one woman told the whole community there where she was. Shechem told the whole community what Jesus had said and done to her. 
He speaks to one man that has no power whatsoever in and of himself. He is invalid. He's been invalid for 38 years. And he has no hope for a mediator because there's just no one he knows that would put him in the pool in time for the troubled water. So isn't the Lord great in the choosing of the people that he desires to help for our sake? So here we are. And, 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 and so this, this man expresses to Jesus he has no one to put him in the waters. And so Jesus simply tells him, arise. Some, something that up to this point was impossible for him. He says, rise up. And then he tells him, take up your bed. You know what that means? Take up your bed. It means there's no going back here. Jesus didn't want him to save his spot. Jesus told him, take up your bed because if you leave your bed, you're, what you're saying there is, I'll tell you what, if this doesn't work while I'm walking, then, you know, if I start falling apart, I'll just come back to my bed. He says, no, take up your bed and walk. Walk. That was to say, keep walking. This is your continued success. You keep walking. And the man's healing was instant and it was complete. You see, with the Lord, there are no hopeless situations. Y'all believe that? There are no hopeless situations with the Lord. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. That's all there is. So let, let, let me give you this here. Some men only see a hopeless end. Believers rejoice in an endless hope. Please always keep that in mind. Always keep that in mind. Some men only see a hopeless end, but believers rejoice in an endless hope. So now this man is healed. But there's only one major dilemma now. And that, in the eyes of the religious ones, all about Jesus and man, all about Jesus and the man, all the ones that were religious around, they, this healing took place. You know, all that meant, meant to them is that it took place on the Sabbath. And they were upset about it. Look at verses 10 through 16. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, they spoke to the man who was healed, and they said, it, it is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. <laughs> You're under arrest. For carrying your stinky bed. And he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Now, some people say that this guy's ratting on Jesus. You know, like he's, you know, tattletale here. Y'all remember tattletales in school? Oh man, we hated them. Hey, you told on me. Bing bakab. But he's not doing that. You'll see in just a moment. And then ask they him, What man is that, is that which was said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And, and he that was healed was not who it was. In other words, he didn't know who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away. He, you know, he snuck away, he slipped away. Jesus got away because of a multitude being in that place. But then afterward... Jesus findeth him in the temple. Finds the man in the temple. Hey, that's a good place for this man to be. What is that telling us? That this man, after all of this happened, went to the temple to worship God. And said unto him, Behold, 
Thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now, that's not a threat. Okay, understand, this is not the way Jesus operates. It's not a threat in the way that we understand threats. It's a warning, yes. But it's not, oh, hey, you better not sin because if, if you do, man, I'm coming after you. You know, well, pow, you know, get you. No, no, no. Just understand, sin no more lest the worst thing come unto thee. And I'll explain that in a moment. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus. So now that he knows that it's Jesus, he goes to these people, he says, it's Jesus who made me whole. Is he ratting on Jesus? He's testifying of Jesus. And therefore, did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So when John speaks of the Jews there in verse 10, he's not speaking of all the Jewish people, but of the religious leaders and, and, and these religionists, you know, they had a problem with the healed man walking about in obedience to Jesus, I might add. So in all of this, they negated the miracle. To them, ah, I want to hear about this miracle. It's a miracle. From their own scriptures, they know that God can do these things. But now because it was on the Sabbath and they had built so many laws on top of the laws about the Sabbath themselves, now they're thinking, you know, you know it's a bad thing to do anything on the Sabbath. And if a person gets healed, you know, but if they get healed on the Sabbath, no, we got we to gotta, gotta draw the line somewhere, you see. They negated the miracle and complained that this man was carrying his bed on the Sabbath. So what was it that was sinful? Let me ask you this. What was it that was sinful? A man carrying his bed after being healed by the Lord Jesus or hypocrites carrying their legalism? What was the sin? You're awfully quiet. Hypocrites carrying their legalism. Let's face it. The man did not break the law of Moses. He only broke the legalist interpretation of the law. He broke the religionist interpretation of the law. He did not break the law of Moses. It needs to be understood that the Pharisees came up with 39 categories of unpermitted work, quote-unquote. They came up with 39 categories. The Pharisees did. Along with a number of dull, wearisome, tedious restrictions. For example, in Jesus' day, the rabbi said that you were sinning if you, and I, and I quote, you were sinning if you carried a needle in your robe, like a sewing needle, if you carried a needle in your robe on the Sabbath. Can you imagine if they pull out the needle and started doing a little bit of sewing, you know? Ah! Stone him! I guess that person was going to sew himself right out of heaven. Just for having a needle in their robe. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, this is where religion gets really idiotic and embarrassing, and may I say in a very nice word, stupid. 
Anytime there is no joy over a person's healing and only concern over a technicality. Isn't that stupid? By the way, that isn't just in Judaism. Even in Christianity, where people are very legalistic about things in the Word of God. Do this, don't do that. I remember a time when, when people, you know, if you went to church without a tie, man, they just, I'm sorry. The next time you better come with a tie. I don't remember when uh, Peter ever wore a tie to, you know, to synagogue. So I don't know where that comes from. So I'd be stoned to death, I guess. Think of it. <laughs> a man deprived of work for 38 years is accused of working too much. Right? A man who, who, who is deprived of being able to work for 38 years in one moment is declared uh, a person who's working too much, carrying his bed on the Sabbath. You see, legalists measure spiritual growth against a yardstick notched incrementally by good works. They're driven by self-made standards, but in the end, they stunt growth, never promoting growth. With legalism, all you do is stunt growth, never promote growth. I suppose you can call that the art of turning wine into water. Boy, that one went over a lot of you there. Just the reverse, right? Of what Jesus came to teach. So this is what the law in effect does. It kills while the Spirit gives life. What must be remembered is that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Let's look at that in Mark chapter 2. Turn to Mark chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark. And let's look at verses 23 through 25. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. Now, that's not maize. That is not corn like we know corn. All right? They weren't going through the fields saying, hey, this would make a good thing for July the 4th. You know, roast it on the grill, you know. No. The word corn there just means, uh, you know, we, uh, a grain. So whatever the grain may have been, it could have been barley, it could have been uh, wheat. Uh, but in any event, it says that uh, they went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Why are they doing that? And, and he said unto them, Have you never read what David did? Now, I, I love the, the, the way that Jesus presents things to the Pharisees because these are the men that are supposed to be the ones who really know the Word of God. The Pharisaical group came out of the need to, to really focus on the Word and to love God's Word and to do God's Word. 
But then they began to build law upon law, walls around certain laws, you see. So he says unto them, have you never read what David did when he had need and was a hungered and he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread? I mean, the showbread that was inside the temple or the tabernacle. And did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him? Hey, when you're hungry, I mean, didn't the Lord say, if you see someone hungry, feed him? Didn't say, you can feed him anything, but don't go into that showbread stuff, man. That's just for the priest. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. This is the proper interpretation of Sabbath. The proper interpretation of Shabbat. The Shabbat was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. They were to honor God in the Sabbath. And in so doing, they honored the Sabbath for that very purpose. But the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So keep in mind then that the Shabbat or the Sabbath was to be a day of rest. A day that you remembered the creation, the way God created things in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. You were to remember all the things that God had done, all the good things. You were to thank Him. You were to thank Him for every little thing that you had around you. It was a day of spending time with God, a day of spending time with the Lord and with your family. But they had made it into a day of heavy burdens with all the rules and the regulations that they added. In a word, there was no joy. A Sabbath without joy is no Sabbath. But for those who come to Yeshua, for those who come to Jesus, there is joy and there is peace. And not one has to work their way into that. In other words, we do not have to work our way into that blessing of Sabbath because the gift is received by faith. You have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But when you are a legalist, then you have something to boast in. You boast in yourself. I keep all the law. That's a lie, by the way. No one can keep all the law. Because we're flesh. We're human. I keep most of the law. That's just... That's just a way of rationalizing. (laughs) Or you can do what that one man did on the steps on the way to the temple. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on this sinner. While a Pharisee was blowing his own horn. Jesus said, which one goes home justified? Why is it that Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, therefore, uh, whoops, did I miss one? Lord of the Sabbath, okay. Yeah, by the way, let's, let's not, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Let's, let's not forget that. That's a really important verse. Don't want to skip that. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of Shabbat. The one who gives us joy. The one who gives us peace. All right, let's move on. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Certainly Jesus was talking about the labors of of life. 
the struggles in life. But don't forget that part of those labors were those who were putting more and more law upon them. Not the law of God, but the law of man. He goes on to say, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The one who is the Logos, the one who gave the law, whose finger wrote on stone the law to Moses to give to the people, the one who came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, is the one who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so in verses 12 through 14 of our text, the legalist asked the man who it was that told him to rise, to take up his bed and walk. But he didn't know because the Lord had slipped out as a multitude assembled. These religious leaders believed that there was a spiritual issue that was even more important than a miraculous healing, an issue that needed to be dealt with. So in verse 14, Jesus seeks out that man and finds him in the temple, the place of worship. Now he points something out to him that is quite significant. Listen. His crippled condition would have only lasted his lifetime if Jesus hadn't healed him. That's just an obvious thing. If Jesus hadn't healed him, he would have stayed lame for the rest of his life, whether it would be another year, two years, ten years, or twenty years. If Jesus hadn't healed him, he would have stayed lame. But if he did not receive Christ, if he did not receive the Messiah, that would mean an eternal condition. Separation from God in the lake of fire. And thus the latter would be far worse than the former condition that he was in. And so the man is told no longer to live a life of sin, which may mean that his previous condition was connected to a sinful lifestyle. It's very possible. Although it's also possible that it wasn't, but in this case, it may very well be for Jesus to point it out to him that way. And so the man departs and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, which means they went after him. They sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. There are two ways of looking at this passage. First of all, this may reflect the intimidation of the religious leaders upon this man who was simply and yet profoundly changed and healed by Jesus. That's possibly something that may have happened. People who are legalists will always intimidate you. They'll always seek to intimidate you. If you don't do a certain thing their way, you know, you're going to go to hell for it no matter what. There are certain groups and sects today that believe that because we meet on a Sunday, we're all going to hell because we're not, you know, we're not honoring the Sabbath that way. Where's the freedom in Christ? The true freedom in Christ? The very fact that we're meeting on the first day of the week as, as many 
met on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as, as uh, Paul points out. You see how legalism can really make your life a bummer? If I can use some surfing terms. What a bummer. There's joy. Hey, if we wanted to meet tomorrow as well, would you all come and meet? It's not, it's not Saturday, you know, but is it okay? See? Okay, all you who said amen, I'll see you tomorrow night. Or tomorrow morning. <laughs> So this may reflect the intimidation of religious leaders upon this man who was simply yet profoundly chased by Jesus. But on the other hand, this may very well be his testimony of Jesus' power to heal, proving him to be the Mashiach, the Messiah. Notice that he didn't tell the Jews, notice, he did not tell the Jews that it was Jesus who made him walk about with his bed. Oh yeah, Jesus told me to walk around with my bed. No, what did he tell them? Jesus made me whole. Jesus healed me. And that, not only physically, but spiritually. His life was changed. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and thus He could do these things. But because of their views, they wanted to put Jesus to death, plotting this even on the Sabbath day. Hey, who's breaking the Sabbath law? I guess they did not see this as wrong. Murder on the Sabbath. They ought to make a movie out of that. Great title. Murder on the Sabbath. Maybe a TV miniseries. So, they didn't see that as wrong, right? Murder on the Sabbath. But if a person carried his bed... If he was healed on the Sabbath, I mean, that's surely deserving of death, isn't it? You know why I bring that up? Because there was, in fact, a a law built upon this thought that a person who inadvertently carries his bed on the Sabbath or does any work on the Sabbath, you know, he only has to pay, you know, for that, uh, you know, by doing certain things. But a person who willfully does it, he is to be stoned to death. Now, where's the joy in that? Do you see how ridiculous then their views were and how contrary they were to the things of God, even though they, were, they could have been very sincere? They could have been thinking that this was well-intentioned. But of course, we know that uh, someone once said that the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The things that Jesus told this man in the temple, sin no more, and, and just warns him about that. That's worthy of our consideration as we close our service today. Let's consider this for just a moment. He says, he says to the man, sin no more lest the worst thing come unto thee. Again, this is not so much a, a, a threat but a warning. More than likely based upon you know, what, what put him into the condition he was in. 
But let's leave here with this, this understanding from Romans chapter 6. Would you turn there, please? And we'll close with this today. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 12. Now, Paul says, if we be dead with Christ. Now remember, we, as believers in Jesus Christ, were taught that we have to die to ourselves and let Christ live in us. In other words, if, if you take Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 uh, to heart, I am therefore crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. So it is dying to self to let Christ live in us. So understand that if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Not only in him, but with him. And then notice, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Praise the Lord. Right? I mean, he, he doesn't die again. It's not a continuous thing. You know, well, you know, we, Jesus has to die again so that he can rise again. Die again so he can rise again. No, just he did it once. Once for all, the scripture says in the book of Hebrews. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. And that's the way it is for us. And this is what Paul goes on to say. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. And remember, the sinless one died for the sinners, which is us. He in in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Which means that if he liveth unto God, dying on our behalf, we are to live unto God. Amen? So then, likewise, reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Be dead to sin and alive unto God, or but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Follow that same pattern. And then notice in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What did he tell the man? Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Well, that's an obvious thing then. As believers, we are to not let sin therefore reign in our mortal bodies, so that, you, so that we should obey it in the lust thereof. In other words, we are not to obey the lust or the sin that we are fighting against. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In other words, who, who has dominion or what has dominion in your life? If sin has dominion, then, you know, then, then you're going to continue to obey that lust. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Let Christ reign in you, that you might obey Him. And it's just a matter of saying, Lord, help me to get this out of my way so that I can start obeying you again. Again, as believers, that I might start obeying you now as one who comes to Christ, realizing the need for salvation the need to be cleansed from sin, the need to accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death on our behalf and his rising again, conquering sin and death so that they no longer reign in our mortal bodies. Amen? All right. Well, it was an interesting way to get to verse 16. <laughs> but, praise the Lord. Let's, let's thank the Lord. And 
move on here from this, from this time. Father.